Kia ora and welcome to the Stronger Dads Collective podcast, where we aim to help dads be stronger versions of themselves as fathers, people, and in their athletic pursuits. I'm your host, Hayden Pritchard, and you can find me at hjp underscore stronger dads on Instagram, and you can learn more about me and my coaching services at hjpmethod.co.nz. Before you finish listening today, be sure to rate and subscribe on the platform you're listening to. Right, let's get into today's episode. Kia ora and welcome to episode 41 of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. This week I'm joined by Dr. Cliff Harvey, who I've known for, I, I was doing the math before, and I think it's actually a decade now um, since I first met you on a trip to Auckland um, a wee while back, but I'm pretty sure that was 2014 or 2013. So if not a decade, it's it's at least nine years. Um Cliff is a clinical nutritionist, he's an educator, and he was also, and I don't know if he still is, but he was an all-round weightlifter. Um, In doing that, he was actually a three-times world record holder and a two-times world champion. He tells me that sounds more impressive than it is, but I figure if the title is there, we may as well claim it. So how are you doing, Cliff? I'm good, brother. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Been been a wee while since I think we actually properly caught up um, and... I just sort of thought, hey, this this guy knows a thing or two about some stuff. Maybe I should get him on the podcast um, because, as you know, I've been a, a follower of your work pretty much since I met you. Um, and, you know, in, in my mind, when I think back to it, you were kind of like in my head, at least at the start, like one of the alternative like low carb guys. And I don't think that's probably a fair representation um, of you. But initially, that was my like thought of Cliff is Cliff is the like low carb guy that actually knows a thing or two. Um, so I don't know, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, that, that's a certainly a nice thing to say, you've said a few nice things. But um, I, I think it's, it's fair enough. But there's nuance there. And I think, uh, you know, in many respects, it's, it's a double edged sword, right? It's nice, in some respects, being known as that low carb or keto guy because it gives people an introduction to me and then they realize that it's not all about keto, it's not all about low carb, it's this idea of carb appropriate that I developed probably 25 years ago, which is really about individualization of diet and finding the right dietary fit for the person yeah. and recognizing that it's all you know a spectrum. Some people thrive on high carb diets, some people thrive on low carb, and we certainly have a lot of evidence for that. So. You know, it's one of those interesting things where if it leads people to find a more pragmatic approach to nutrition, then it's all good. Um, but it also means that, you know, for the keto zealots out there, I'm nowhere near keto enough. And for the um, high carb zealots out there, I'm too low carb. So you're just stuck in the middle. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like, I don't know, almost got the worst of both worlds there, mate. Like you can't quite win with anyone audience. Although to be fair, like, um, I think, as you say, that's kind of like a surface level understanding and a surface level thought process. And as I say, that's probably the impression I might have got, you know, on the face of things when I sort of looked at some of the stuff that you'd put out or promoted. Um, but when I actually dug into, I think it was the Carb Appropriate Diet. I think that's a book, isn't it? That was one of your books, Carb Appropriate Diet. Yeah. Um, is it? hope I got the name right. Um, but I remember yeah. reading that one and that was probably one of the one of the better nutrition books that I had read in terms of like making an argument that isn't i guess dogmatic um it kind of approaches the topic from a what do you require type um scenario which i think is kind of the best way to look at things um you know like that high octane fuel versus low octane fuel and i guess um 
don't know. You you can probably explain that better better than me. But you know that's kind of the thing. Once they got into the book, it was quite obvious that you're you're not just sitting there promoting like you need to be keto. You know, no more than fifty grams of carbs or anything like that. That's definitely not the way you're looking at things. No, definitely not. And you know, even when I look back at that book, because it's it, it's quite old now. You know, I published mm. that quite a long time ago. There are still a lot of things I would change about it. It, it probably veered a little bit too much low carb because it mm. was it was kind of designed as a pragmatic guide to low carb but that doesn't encapsulate the carb appropriate approach because the carb mm. appropriate approach you know includes all all areas of that spectrum yeah. um, you know recognizing and it's it's based in the research this is the funny thing a lot of low carb zealots they know that there's research out there showing that some people perform well, obviously we know some people perform better on low carb, but some people, for yeah. example, achieve, you know, better fat loss results on high carb, um, you know, particularly people who are insulin sensitive, but it's it's as if they wantonly just forget that. Yeah. You know, or avoid it in conversations. Um, and you got to wonder, you know, is it, is, is it just a branding exercise? You know, is it to sell more books? Is it to, to have your stake in the sand and have your sort of tribe around you. Um, you know, our mutual buddy, Eric Helms, I think is a really good example of someone who's been able to create a, a brand and a very, very strong following being in that pragmatic middle space. Yeah. And I personally think that's, you know, that's the place to be because it's sustainable, it's realistic, it's non-judgmental, it's all the things we kind of want in nutrition and health, right? Yeah, and so yeah, it's it's a, certainly an interesting journey. But I've got to give low carb its its cre uh, you know cred because it was a big part of helping me to be more pragmatic. Because you know that's where it all really started for me back in the day was being presented with a lot of information at university that I didn't feel was actually that evidence based. Yeah, and it didn't start with low carb per se. It actually started with high protein. And at the time, we were still being told you know very very low um, guidelines for for protein and that just didn't mesh with the research that i was seeing coming out um you know there was very little attention paid to omega-3 fatty acids at that time although it was mm. starting to come up and so there was a lot that was really just lagging behind the times and that's when i really started thinking about switching things because at the time it was very much you need to provide x amount of carbohydrate and it's almost then like you're trying to fill in the rest of the diet with protein and fat. Yeah. But when I looked at that pragmatically, I kind of figured that protein and fat being the predominant structure within the body, fat's obviously fuel as well. But if someone is far less active, they might not require that really high intake of carbohydrate. And if they don't have a very high energy intake, there might actually not be enough left over within their calorie allotment to have optimized protein. Yeah. So I just figured flip it. You know, give people optimized protein, give them maybe as a starting point, the minimum levels of fat they require to preserve hormonal balance and help prevent the risk of overtraining and things like that. And then whatever's less left, give them in carbohydrate. Mm. That was the whole genesis of the carb appropriate idea, because that meant the more active someone was, the more carbs they would have, the less active, the less carbohydrate they would have. That just made a lot of sense to me because, because obviously carbohydrate is predominantly an energy providing macro. It doesn't have the, the same degree of those structural components that either protein or fat have. Yeah, yeah. So that's where it started. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I guess, and, and like, you know, looking back further than that, you've mentioned about going to university there, but um, oftentimes at the start of this podcast, we'll, we'll, you know, go right back to that childhood and kind of where you grew up and stuff. So, um, you know, myself, I, I don't actually know a lot of your your backstory um, in terms of where you grew up and what family life and all that was like for you growing up. But um, I don't know if you mind taking us back to, to you know, childhood of Cliff and telling us a little bit about what that was like for you and how, I guess, that journey through into um, you know, that formal education and things, um, and then to where you are today. I mean, take take it as far back as you want, go into as much or as little detail as you want, um, and then I can chime in with some questions along the way. Awesome. Yeah, well, um, I grew up on the North Shore of Auckland, and, you know, went to school out in Albany. Uh, pretty sort of uneventful childhood, really. I had a, a great family, great parents, you know, all, all of that side of things was pretty good. I was very active growing up. Uh, played rugby and basketball, mostly. Uh, a few other sports sprinkled here and there. Um, but, Did you have really, any other siblings? Yeah, I had uh, one sister, an older yeah. sister. Yes, and from, you know, just, just fairly normal, uh, I guess what we'd just call middle-class upbringing. Mm. Uh, my old man's family were probably far more working class. You know, my granddad worked shoveling coal on the railways. Uh, back yeah. in the Depression era, uh, my old man's a sparky, my mum was a teacher. And so, yeah, a, a very uh, normal upbringing, mm. you know. And I, I was also, you know, a, a pretty smart kid. And that that was a blessing and a curse, I think, because I, I don't think I really developed... Well, no, this is not true. I was going to say a very self-limiting thing, that I don't think I really developed a, a lot of really good work habits when I was younger. But I think that would be a mischaracterization because, you know, I was talking about this with my partner the other day. If I think back, I was actually obsessed about certain things and I would learn yeah. as much as I could about them. It just wasn't that I was always interested in what was being taught at school. Or yeah. even if I yeah. was interested in it, I wasn't really interested in doing the assignments because I found I could assimilate information really quickly. And mm -hmm. I just was into stuff, you know, so from a young age, I was into like bonsai and I still make bonsai now. Um, I was into all sorts of things, geography and politics and uh, history, you know, all, all sorts of, all the social sciences were really my passion. Yeah. Um, anyway, fast forward a, a few years, I was also fairly anti-authority, not in a, yeah. not in, a, in a, a directly contradictory way or not, not to be contrary for contrary sake. It's just that, just that I really didn't suffer fools gladly. And mm -hmm. I, I had a very strong sense, I think, even at a young age of social justice. So where there was any sort of discrimination and things like that, I, I, it would just really fire me up. Yeah. Um, that led to me getting kicked out of high school eventually. I got kicked out of high school for wearing a skirt. Um, and, and bearing in mind, I was the captain of the first 15, you know, nail polish and skirt wearing kind of. So it was a, a contradiction in terms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that sort of, that changed my, my path quite a lot because up until that point, I had... So why, why did they actually kick you out? Like, surely you kind of just got kicked out for wearing a skirt. Like, what was the, was there some sort of rationale behind that? Like, what was the kind of, I guess, justification for that? How did they say, well, that means you have to go? Was it a uniform thing or what? Ostensibly it was, but there was there was a backstory to it. You know, my, my mates and I, again, we weren't 
contrary for contrary's sake, we were just kids trying to find ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. and we could see, you know, injustice around just because it's it's present in society, right? And although it's probably not a very mature way to approach it, you know, we were trying to kind of act out, I guess, to show some of the injustice, particularly at the time, you know, there was a lot of homophobia back in the 90s, you know. And um, so, you know, we like I say, we would wear nail polish, we would wear skirts and things like that. And it wasn't that there were any rules against that because we had a mufti um, policy in Form 7, so you could actually wear what you wanted. But it it was a Christian school. They didn't really like that. Um, And so when we all showed up one day wearing skirts, uh, they basically said, look, you either, you know, go home, take them off, or you you basically stay home. So I said, cool, I'll I'll stay home. And I sat at home stewing, thinking, this is stupid, because there's no rule against it. You know, we're just trying to express ourselves in whatever way we can. Again, just just kids, you know, doing stupid stuff. And uh, so I called Did up. a whole group of you basically decide to do this, like, at once? Like, it was a big, like, an organised <laughs> thing. What what happened was it was the guy, some guys in the first 15, there was a Mufti day coming up for the whole school. And because we were supposedly, even though we were, you know, pretty alternative, we were the jocks of the school. So we yeah. thought it would be funny for the younger kids if, we all turned up the first 15 wearing skirts, right? So it's, it's actually pretty innocuous, even though we had that yeah, history yeah. of sort of kind of pushing the, the boundaries a little bit. It was very innocuous. It was supposed to just be fun. But when they just came down hard on it, I, I just pushed back. And I thought, bugger that. All the rest of the guys went back to school, you know, wearing their normal clothes. I stayed home and I, I stewed at home for a while and then called uh, Youth Law. I don't know if they're still around. But I called them up and said, I've been sent home for wearing a skirt and the, the lawyer on the phone, because I had these, you know, volunteer lawyers said, oh, well, is there any rule against that? And I said, no. And he said, oh, well, uh, if you want to, you can go back and you can keep wearing the skirt. If there's no rule against it, they, they can't legally send you home. So, you know, whether or not it was the right thing to do, I went back to school <laughs> and they basically then said, you're not welcome at class anymore, you know? And so, what they did was actually highly illegal because you're not supposed to expel a student without obviously due due course. That's there's supposed to be a process. I think they need to inform the ministry in Wellington. All sorts of things were supposed to happen, but they just kicked me out of class and just said, "Look, don't come back." Um, the coaches of the first fifteen though said, "Well, we don't want Cliff to be gone because um, <laughs> we, we need him for the team. So what can he do?" So I basically spent the last few months of my high school life coaching kids to play basketball and rugby yeah yeah which is pretty crazy when you think about it you know you pull a kid out of class you're not giving them an education but you're still expecting them to be there and playing footy for you it's a, it was just a weird sort of situation but i just thought you know that was um that was what it was but mm. how that led to a lot of this stuff is there were a couple of things that came together i had previously wanted to be a landscape architect designing sort of Zen-inspired minimalist gardens, right? That was kind of my, my passion through those yeah. last few years of school. Um, but in order to make the first 15, I was a really skinny kid. The coaches came to me in the, the previous year, beginning of the previous year, and said, if you can put on X amount of weight, you'll captain the first 15. If you don't put on the weight, you won't even make the squad. You're just too small. 
So, you know, I'm obsessive about things. I started reading yeah. every book I could find on strength training, nutrition, started eating, started training, put on a lot of size really quickly as you do in your late teens, you know? Yeah. Um, and then combined with being involved in the PE department as basically a teacher, because they wouldn't let me go to class, I, I started then thinking, I want to do this. I want to be a strength coach Yeah. and nutritionist. You know, I want to basically do the whole lot. And so instead of going off to tech at the time and doing landscape architecture, I went off to AUT and did um, fitness training instead. Yeah. And that was my first qualification. Yeah, yeah. And so did that, were you coaching then? You mentioned you were coaching basketball and rugby. So did you kind of start coaching towards those or in those last couple of years at high school? Like you actually took on a formal, like coaching a team or coaching a group or something during that? Or were you doing that as part of your player role as well? It was more just help, helping out younger kids as part yeah. of the PE department. So teaching them basketball skills, teaching them rugby skills. Oh, okay. uh, I was getting into strength training at the time. So, you know, taking some sort of some gym sessions and things like that. Yeah. And your school had access to gym facilities and stuff that you were able to use as well? Or did you have to go somewhere else for that? We had a, I mean, I'm sure it's way more extensive now because it's not a, uh, it was a private school, so they've, they've got yeah. some dough. Uh, but at the time it was very basic, but they had, you know, a, a barbell, a squat rack, some yeah. dumbbells lying around. It was, you know, your typical dungeon basement kind of, you know, yeah. with a rusty old bar and a few old plates. Um, <laughs> but that was enough, you know. Yeah, definitely. And um and so then you would when you did this course through AUT was that a certificate a degree and how did that kind of lead on to your I guess more formal education because you've obviously got a PhD now so there's quite a process to get to that stage you've got to have your undergrad you know your masters or your honours or whatever it might be and then get into the PhD so what did that kind of journey through that formal education system look like for you? So there were really two options initially one was a bachelor of sport and rec and the other was a diploma in fitness training. And I, I didn't get into the Bachelor of Sport of Rec, mm. right, because I hadn't completed seven form. So I had six form cert, which I don't know if they still have, but I had six form cert and I had a couple of bursary subjects, so seven form subjects that I had done in six form because yeah. I, I had done, you know, bursary early. But it, it wasn't enough to get into the degree. So I, I basically went into the diploma, which was a one-year diploma in fitness training. It was actually a better option at the time because it was just purely focused on personal training. Yeah. And they don't have that qualification anymore. They have, um, you know, shorter certs now in personal training. But this was a one-year full-time course in personal training, so it was actually pretty cool. Yeah. So did that initially, and really it was it was just to get the minimum level of qualification I could at the time to get out, start strength coaching, uh, start providing some basic nutrition coaching. Yeah. Then I obviously wanted more. I wanted to sort of expand that. And I spoke to a couple of people at various universities, Massey and Otago and all sorts, maybe not Otago, probably Massey and Auckland, about maybe going in and doing a human nutrition degree, um, mm. you know, maybe looking even at that stage into what that would mean in terms of postgrad. And the, the, the problem was that everything at that time was so orthodox, it didn't leave any room to explore higher protein or different dietary strategies. Mm. And then, Alongside all of that, I, I got I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I just got really sick really quickly. Yeah, I lost nearly 20 kilos of weight. You know, bleeding internally, all the bad stuff. And because I couldn't really study nutrition in the way I wanted to, I went off into left field and studied uh, naturopathy and herbal medicine. Mm. So 
I, I did a three-year diploma in that. Um, nowadays, the courses are degrees, but back in yeah. the day, they were three-year diplomas. So that was really my my education for a long time was this diploma in fitness training, that undergraduate diploma in uh, naturopathy and herbal medicine. Then, yeah, basically there was a big gap where I went yeah. out and practiced, uh, practiced as a naturopath, a nutritionist, a strength coach for probably 10 years. And then I thought about getting back in, into education. Initially, that was actually through the mind-body healthcare pathway at AUT because I was really interested in, in the psychoneurophysiology of, of health and performance as well. Mm. And I'd done a lot of modality work looking into that. So I had incorporated a lot of things through continuing edu education into my practice that were really looking at the way our beliefs and our sort of deep autonomic patterning affects our health and affects our performance. And I was using a lot of that with, with athletes and people with chronic health conditions. So I really wanted to explore that further. So I, I went into, well, I didn't quite, I, I couldn't go straight into AUT postgrad because I didn't have a degree. So I picked uh, up a true. couple of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, kept up, picked up a couple of papers to basically make my diploma a degree equivalent. I picked up some research papers to flesh it out at the level seven. Then I went into the postgrad diploma in mind-body healthcare. But then a, a strange thing happened up at AUT where they started to get interested in lower carb nutrition. And that was predominantly driven initially, you'd be surprised, but that was driven by Dr. Joe McQuillan. And he's the unsung mm. hero of, of that movement up there. Because he started seeing interesting things in athletes that didn't quite make sense because you've got athletes who are maybe reaching master's age, they're exhibiting signs of pre-diabetes and it shouldn't didn't really make sense because they'd eaten the standard high, you know, high carbohydrate diet, albeit probably for them, highly refined, ultra processed. Um, but also there's genetic predisposition there. But anyway, yeah. He started pushing that a, a little bit. And I've been friends with Joe for oh, a long time, you know, since probably 1999 or something. We've been friends for a long time and we've done some field research together. Mm -hmm. So he said, um, there's a guy just down the road who's been working with a whole spectrum of diets from low carb through to high carb for, you know, probably 20 years. I'm not quite at that point, probably 15 years at this point. So I met up with uh, Karen and Grant and the, the team up there. Uh, they said, well, why don't you switch over to a master's in nutrition and MPhil? And so I switched over to that, started doing research, uh, did some studies that they then said, well, why don't you transition this master's into a PhD without completion? So I did that, switched all my sort of research over, kept researching until basically I had a, you know, a, a PhD thesis. I think we published about six studies out of that thesis. So it was, you know, fairly well published, which means technically I had nothing. I had no completed qualification between a diploma and a PhD. So I think that's pretty unique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I, um, people think it's weird because I had my honours and it was a first class, you know, I managed to sneak into the first class category of honours, which meant at New Zealand institutes, you could go straight into a PhD program without having to do another year of a full master's program. So for some people overseas, even my pathway is weird, but yours, mate, is that's, I didn't even realise that. Um, that. But I mean, and six it, publications it, it, from it is quite considerable as well. Like I think from our, from my thesis, I might have had four I think it was three or four like proper papers and then a couple of sort of poster presentations and stuff with some of the appendices but um that's that's a decent number of publications 
Yeah, and, and some of them did pretty well. You know, I was, I was pretty stoked. Two papers that we published in PJ were in the top five uh, most read articles in that journal for their respective years. Yeah. So they, they got quite a bit of notice and they're still very frequently cited. And it's, mm. it's really just because no one had looked. It was one of those weird things, and you would have seen this in your research. Sometimes you just expect that people have done research in a particular area or on a particular yeah. topic, and you try and find it for like your lit review, and there's nothing there. Yeah. So you think, we're, we're like, we're, we're and especially when it's things that have been quite foundational in the practice of whether it be strength or nutrition. Mm. So a good example of that was the that the idea of nutritional ketosis. Everyone talked about it. Everyone knew what it was. Everyone knew, in inverted commas, that it was greater than 0.5 millimoles per liter of beta hydroxybutyrate. There are people listening in who don't know what that is. Don't worry about the number. It's just that there was a particular number ascribed to it, 0.5 millimoles per liter. But there was no evidence for that. And yeah. I, I spoke to one of the early researchers in the low-carb space, a guy called Dr. Stephen Finney. And he basically said, well, we, we kind of just guessed because that's when we saw improvements in like quality of life, mental function, stuff like that, when people were doing our studies. Yeah. But no one had really quantified it. There was only really some retrospective stuff where most people following a keto diet ended up over that level. Mm. But that's not really proof. So it was quite cool because our research also helped to solidify that whole understanding of the induction of ketosis. Uh, keto flu, you know, and I still think that some of our research is underappreciated in that respect because it's not even keto flu. People yeah. experience basically the same symptoms irrespective of whether on a keto diet, a low carb diet, or a moderate carb diet, if the drop in carbs is enough. Yeah. So keto flu is a bit of a misnomer, but yeah. <laughs> and so then during this time, mate, because we've just basically gone the span of high school to having a PhD and we haven't once talked about what you were doing kind of in terms of a training sense, how did you kind of go from I guess, playing around with some weights at the high school type, you know, getting into lifting there. How did that kind of evolve into this all-round weightlifting? And probably the other question that goes alongside there is, like, I remember when I first saw you say that you did all-round weightlifting back when I first met you, and I'm like, what is this thing? Like, how did you discover um, the sport of all-round weightlifting? Because there's some pretty cool, like, and unique things that happen in that sport but it's relatively unknown in New Zealand um, I don't know if it's grown in popularity since I've kind of not been as heavily involved in sort of the powerlifting scene but um, I remember when I got into weightlifting and I started to see some of these movements that were all around weightlifting it was kind of like wow that's <laughs> that's pretty unreal you know like I think there's things like well one-handed snatches and all sorts of crazy things that go down in their sports basically anything goes or at least that's what it appeared to me I was like man these guys kind of just lift things in interesting ways and see who can do the most pretty much yeah and it was it was a, an interesting and circuitous journey to end up there because like I say I played mostly basketball and rugby mm. and if anything I actually like you know basketball is my favorite sport I'm obsessed with basketball now you know yeah. I watch the I love the Grizzlies I watch the Grizzlies every single match they they play you know it's um it, that, that's my thing yeah but I didn't get into it early enough or we didn't just, you know, we didn't have the coaching at the time to to really develop that skill set. I'm too short anyway. I'm, only, <laughs> I'm just 5'10 if I'm lucky. I wasn't going to say anything, Cliff, but we're about the same <laughs> height. And so I was thinking, geez, basketball will be a hard task. Yeah. But <laughs> Especially I in Auckland explosive. where there is a lot of tall people compared to, you know, somewhere like Palmy, we don't have the same population base. But I imagine yeah, there's a few tall people up there. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that 
I had in my favor for most sports was I, I was a pretty explosive mm-hmm. athlete. I'm not anymore because of injuries, but I, I could jump, you know, at, at a height of, I didn't hit 5'10 until I was probably in my mid 20s. Mm-hmm. I was probably more like 5'7 in my late teens. And I could, I couldn't quite dunk, but I could certainly, you know, get up there and grab the hoop. Yeah. Um, so pretty good vertical. But anyway, uh, I, those were my passions. But I'd also been involved in martial arts as a younger kid. So I'd been involved mm. in karate and judo. And I got really interested in boxing towards the end of my sort of high school time. It just so happens that when I went to AUT, um, I met a guy called Chris Martin. Now, you may not have heard of Chris Martin, but he recently passed away. He became one of my best friends. And um, it's really sad, actually, because he, he, he was a really pivotal person in my life for a, a couple of reasons. I'll tell you about them. But he was a boxing coach, and we went to AUT together. He was quite a bit older than me. He was about 10 years mm. older. Uh, and he was a very good coach. He has coached, you know, kickboxers like Jason Suddy. He's held pads for Doug Viney. He was a um, coach and, and pad guy for Joseph Parker, David Tua, basically anyone you can think of, Stephen Hittemeyer, you know, all of our yeah. top guys. And so I started training boxing under Chris, and I wanted to go to the Commonwealth Games as a boxer. But I was, I'd had a lot of concussions playing rugby. I'd already had about five or six concussions by this point. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't supposed to be doing contact sport, but I, I <laughs> and you're trying to do boxing. <laughs> well, and the other thing was, I think part of that was I, I was really trying to prove myself. And I, I wrote an article a few years ago about you know, I, I think most fighters realize they're not fighting anyone else; they're fighting themselves. They're fighting their own stuff. Mm. And a big part of that for me was it was two things really. Um, one. Was like I come from a long line of hard men. I actually I got up at Chris's funeral just a few months ago and, and spoke about this. I come from a long line of hard men, and I was trying to prove that. You know, my grandfather, like I say, shovel shovel coal on the railways. He was also a champion catch wrestler, right back in the day. My old man was a judoka. Uh, you know, they they came from a small town up north, and you used your fists. It was what you did. Mm. I went to a private school. I had a very different upbringing because my old man had, you know, been quite successful as a sparky. And so I think there was always that sort of conflict. I felt like I had had the silver spoon in my mouth that wasn't really justified. You know, I had to kind of prove myself to my ancestors, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And so I wanted to, to fight. But I ended up getting knocked around in the ring as well. And I, I think I was a pretty good boxer. You know, Chris, Chris said, you know, you could go far in the sport, but I didn't have the head for it. Yeah. And I was sparring, you know, heavyweights. I was sparring guys like Paul Mattaelli, who I trained for a number of years. This guy was a six foot six, 120 kilo Tongan super heavyweight champion in New Zealand. Anyway, I ended up getting a bit knocked around. Chris, one of the reasons he was so pivotal for me was he came to me and said, dude, you've got a brain. You know, there's, there's a lot you could do. You could work with my fighters. You could be a great nutritionist. There's all these things you can do. If you keep fighting, you could be a good fighter, but you'll probably lose that stuff, you know, mm. because you'll probably lose what cognitive faculties you have. I'm paraphrasing. He wouldn't have said cognitive faculties. <laughs> um, and that was, you know, that, that set me on a different path. And I started looking at, he also um, helped put me right on a few other things. I'd also become involved a little bit with some stuff that, you know, I probably shouldn't have been involved in, you know, gangs and whatnot. Mm. And so he really helped to set me on a better path. 
And through that, I was just looking around at what else I could do because I really liked the idea of being strong. And I don't know how I came across it, but I think I came across some old books that have been written by Arthur Saxon, Herman Gorner, you know, these old wrestlers and weightlifters who are yeah. still considered to be some of the strongest men in history. George Hackenschmidt, you know, people like that. And I started looking further into it and I found this organization that still governed on, in a worldwide sense all-round weightlifting. When I looked into it further, I realized that all-round weightlifting is weightlifting. Mm. Back in the early Olympics, it was all-round. In the early Olympics, you had one-arm snatches and one-arm clean and jerks and all sorts of weird stuff. It wasn't until they wanted to define it a lot more and just have initially three lifts. Obviously, there was the press, yeah. um, snatch and clean and jerk, but now it's just the snatch and clean and jerk. But before that, it was they would basically pick the lifts several years out from the event. And that's what we do now in all round. So yeah. I thought that was really cool because I, I didn't think I had the body for to be a powerlifter or an Olympic weightlifter, but I thought I, I probably could do some interesting lifts and have fun with it. Um, it turned out that I was, you know, I, I was okay at some things. I had a pretty good grip lift mm. um, and I had a pretty strong back, even though I blew it out <laughs> a few times. But I managed to put up some decent lifts and I, I just really enjoyed all round. And um, a couple of years back, I, I did get back into it. So I, I will be doing a bit more competing after we get through this first phase of our our kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's, yeah. That's how I, I feel. feel yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, because it's quite an like it is a really interesting sport. And it's I guess that's, you know, it's a little bit like, I guess, there's elements of that whole unpredictability and you know, and what you may end up having to do. So there's kind of like, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what you might expect in like a strongman competition where there'll be some pretty standard things that you'd likely to see or specific movements you're probably likely to see, but the scope of what can actually be included is, is kind of almost limitless. You know, you can kind of yeah. do whatever you want. Um, because for those who haven't seen the sport before, like it's not limited to just barbells, is it? Is there kettlebell stuff in there? What What are the sort of the, I guess, general rules and regulations and what are some common movements you might see in that? Well, there, yeah, I mean, there, there are other, you know, there's dumbbell lifts, there's kettlebell lifts. So it tends to a lot of it be barbell and dumbbell, though. Mm. And that was just due for a long time. There was a, a limited availability of kettlebells for, yeah. for most people. So for a long time, it was, you know, predominantly barbell and dumbbell lifts. Uh, it tends to be, especially for the major comps, it does tend to to some degree mimic what people would think of in Olympic lifting or powerlifting. Let's say, for example, at a World Champs, we might have three lifts on day one, three lifts on day two, and it might be that the first day's lifts are more like your old school Olympic lifts. Yeah. But there's usually some twist on it. It might be a clean into a reflex press. Yeah. So in other words, you clean and there's no stop. You've got to press straight into it, straight out of it. Um, it might be that there's a one-arm snatch instead of, you know, a normal snatch, or it might be that the you do a um, a continental style clean or snatch. Yeah. Because you know that the the the, the clean shouldn't actually touch the body. It can mm -hmm. now, but in the early days it wasn't allowed to. That's why it was a clean lift. Yeah. Whereas the continental style lift could touch the body. Is that the one where you see strongmen end up with it on their belts? Exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. because the, the bar's allowed to stop as well. Yeah. 
and you're allowed multiple attempts at the jerk. If you can, if you don't hit your jerk and you can catch it again, you can go again. That kind of stuff. So, <laughs> I don't think that'd be much good for me, mate. I think I'd just get crushed. I, I've yeah. never been particularly great at receiving a, you know, a jerk for a second rep or anything like that. So. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, and a, a lot of the other lifts are what would be similar to power lifts, but you would typically see things like a, maybe a pullover and push instead of a bench mm-hmm. press. So that's lying on the ground, pulling over and pushing into a bridge. Uh, there might be things like straddle deadlifts, which some people call the Jefferson lift in the States. Um, what else might we have? One arm deadlifts, you know, very common yeah. in all round comps. Uh, hack lifts, you know, uh, zircher lifts. Are you allowed to use straps in all round or is it all? Yeah. No, it's raw. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's very limited equipment. There have been a few things snuck in predominantly because people have had injuries and it's been seen to be helpful. Um, mm. you know, for those people who have had past injuries. So there, there is a limited amount of wrist and knee strapping allowed. But apart from that, you know, you, there's no no equipped lifts. You're not allowed to use yeah. powerlifting suits per se. Um, it's it's very raw. Can you wear knee sleeves, elbow sleeves, anything like that or no? Nah? No, I don't believe so. Okay. I could be wrong on that. that some of the rules might have changed. But I, I know yeah. you can certainly wear, you can wear knee wraps, but they have to be under a certain length. I can't remember what they are. Um, they can't provide too much sort of contractile tension. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, oh. it's 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 pretty cool. You know, some of the guys who are legends in the sport, that they put up big lifts. I mean, it's all drug tested too. So you, you and most yeah. of the guys are natural. Like they're pretty hard on it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, you see guys like Steve Angel, another good mate of mine who unfortunately has passed away. He had the, I believe, the heaviest ever one hand deadlift, the heaviest ever zercher lift. Um, and it's just impressive seeing these guys do those those crazy things. Quite funny, because Zurchers Zurchers seem to be making a comeback, like in S and C. Like I've started to notice, like on Instagram, a bunch more people just seem to randomly be doing Zurcher squats. And I always remember looking at that and thinking, that is so strange. Like, why would you hold in your elbow crease when you've got this perfectly good, you know, back rack <laughs> position that you can utilize? You know, that was before I was even front squatting. I'm like, you know, that's that was way too far removed for me back then. <laughs> Well, I mean, most of the lifts that are like that came from the fact that in the very early days, there were no squat racks. Yeah. So, you know, people had to find ways to provide load in, in different ways without necessarily being able to take it off the rack. That's why you've got the, um, I think it's the Arthur lift. I, I could have that one wrong, but when you tilt the bar up on its end. Get and put it onto the back. Yeah. Basically under the bar and then squat it. You know, there's, there's weird stuff like that, which some people just look at it and say, that's that's nuts. And I can kind of agree with them, but it's also, it's it's actually part of the history of weightlifting and physical yeah. culture. And one element of it that I really dig as well is you look back at all those great old-time all-round weightlifters, they were all wrestlers as well. Mm. And so that sort of speaks to, you know, my, my granddad is a catch wrestler, my dad is a judoka, and I'm obviously a um, competitive catch wrestler as well. You know, I'm yeah. a BJJ player, catch wrestler. I've been doing that now for probably 13, 14 years. What's catch wrestling? Catch wrestling is, I think it's, it's basically no-gi Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? But it, it has, it's an older sport than Brazilian jiu-jitsu. A lot of the stuff that people do in Brazilian jiu-jitsu that had been done previously in catch, like the, all the grappling arts, whether it be judo, Japanese jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, catch wrestling, a lot of them had a, a very similar genesis. Oh, okay. Catch wrestling was an incredibly popular sport back in England and Europe uh, in the 19th century. 
and it sort of carried through to the modern day. The reason professional wrestling is, exists is because of catch wrestling. Originally, guys used to have these big matches, like famous catch wrestlers would have these matches, and then they would um, they would tour the match. So whoever won, they would reenact it basically, and that's where professional wrestling came from. Uh, yeah. And eventually, they just started having fixed matches. But yeah. a lot of the early, like a lot of early professional wrestlers, even up into the modern day in Japan, a lot of great um, catch wrestlers became professional wrestlers. Like yeah. a, a guy called Sakuraba, who was known as the Gracie Killer. Yeah. He, he was a pro wrestler, but he was a catch wrestler and he was legit. He trained, <laughs> I believe he trained under really legit guys like Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson, who were like legends yeah. catch wrestler. But I love catch. It's, it's, it's brutal, like a lot of neck cranks and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's awesome. And it's cool that it all fits together. So why is it called catch wrestling? Is there something to the name? Like, It's catch as catch can. So you basically catch, you're, you're catching submissions yeah. wherever you can. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. It's also a very early form of MMA because there's catch, and then there were also matches that were known as all-in matches. And my, my granddad used to do some of these all-in matches where you could strike, and at some matches you could kick as well. You could basically kick, you could strike, you could wrestle. So it was basically MMA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically MMA, except there was one big difference. They didn't strike with a closed fist. It was yeah. all palm strikes. Uh -huh. and, and people think that's weird. Like, why would they do that? Well, the reason was that back in the early days, the wrestlers were working men. So they worked with their hands. They were miners. They were um, factory workers. You know, there were people who needed their hands, and if they yeah. broke their knuckles, they would be out of work, and they would their families wouldn't eat. Ah, oh, that makes a lot of sense when you're so sort of thinking a, about that. Yeah, 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 it's pretty pretty cool. I love the history of physical culture, and a lot of people nowadays who are involved in strength sports and bodybuilding don't realize that that's where it all came from. Mm -hmm. You know, the the first bodybuilders were all around weightlifters and wrestlers, guys like yeah. Eugene Sandow, guys like Arthur Saxon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating, eh? Like, there's so much to that as well, and I can, you know, you could spend a long time um, talking about some of this stuff. And I, I think Eric Holmes has done some of that, hasn't he? On some of his, um, I don't know if it was podcasts or something, but I remember he's done a little bit of the history of physical culture. It might have been with Omar. Um, yeah, but yeah, he, I, some really of that stuff's really interesting. Like, I, I kind of love learning about some of that stuff because it does give you a bit of a different appreciation for it. Like, if you just sort of have got into this, I guess, in the Instagram era, it probably hasn't given you the, you know, biggest appreciation for some of this history. And I love it when people have that knowledge and can kind of share that with you because you can kind of, as you say, get the context of why things might be um, yeah. the way they are, you know, like, for instance, I always love learning about why the press got taken away, you know, and it was a judging thing and all those things. And then it's just, you know, all we think of with weightlifting now is snatch and, and clean and jerk. But then actually when I talk to you, it's like actually it evolved from the all-round weightlifting where there was all of these different lifts um that you could have initially it's like ah it's interesting how these things kind of evolve when you see sport nowadays kind of changing or rule shifting and it's like ah, oh, this is kind of a natural i guess evolution of sport that has been happening since we i guess started competing against each other at different things yeah and i mean it changed physiques too you know you look at the physiques of guys like doug hepburn and um uh paul anderson you know guys who are still considered some of the strongest people who have ever walked the planet they, yeah. they had different physiques because that press was so upper chest heavy. Yeah. You know, it was basically could turn into a bench press for some of those guys. <laughs> and yeah, that results in, you know, judging difficulties. But it was just interesting because I think weightlifting at the time was far more about, I mean, the, the, the weightlifters nowadays, they're brutally strong. 
But if you could sort of define technique versus strength back in those days, it, it was more strength. Mm. And especially when the bar couldn't touch the body. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a whole different sort of level, I think, of, of strength. And guys could get away with maybe training some of the movements less less frequently. Yeah. Um, and they, they're really focused on pressing and squatting, a lot of those guys back in the day, you know, particularly guys like uh, Anderson and, and Doug Hepburn. Anyway, yeah. I, I could talk about physical culture. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, it is called the Stronger Dads podcast. So technically, you know, there should be an element of interest in strength. Um, and, and most of my guests have some sort of a strength background. So I'm sure there's a bit of interest in in some of this history. But I realize <laughs> I think, as I said to you before we started, that normally it's around about 40 minutes before we even talk about people being um, dads. And if I look up there at our recording time, we're at about 43 minutes. So <laughs> um, I, I think it might be time for us to transition into um, kind of how things, I guess, have evolve for you over the last couple of years because i think you mentioned to me um your oldest is about two and your youngest is a couple of months at the moment so i guess how has training looked like prior to kids and how has life looked like prior to kids and what's that kind of been like for you did you guys have a you know um what will i say easy path to having kids was it a difficult one like i know you know people will be aware sash and i had some issues having children i don't know if you faced anything similar or if you've had a smooth sailing run what's that journey been like for you man it it feels pretty smooth and i think the reason was i, I think to a large degree I, i'm an older dad you know i'm mid 40s mm. and i think when i was much younger i always thought that i i would probably have kids younger yeah but then it it just didn't you know come into play didn't have a relationship that you know lasted in the same way that Bella and I have. And so I, I to some degree, put it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And not not to the point where I'd said, well, it's not going to happen. It was more that, well, you know, what will be will be kind of thing. And I think to some degree we, I can't speak on Bella's behalf, but I think we had that same sort of mentality. And, and when, you know, we did become pregnant, it was, it was cool. Yeah. And I was really, really happy about that. And I think looking back, the journey with Dexter, our first, was it was probably a little bit more difficult than I realized at the time just because you know first kid just love him to bits and it doesn't seem to to me at least it didn't seem that difficult it was just a lot of work in the same way as like a PhD people say oh you know PhD must have been really hard and I always say well I didn't actually find it that hard it was just a lot of work yeah yeah I I think the two things are, are, are different and I felt the same a lot with, you know, when we had Dexter. Um, now with Rumi, our second, he's he's such a chill kid. Like, he's a really, really chill baby. Um, so we've been quite lucky that, we've you know, we've had sleepless nights and we've had yeah. challenges. But it, it's been, it, it's just been a really positive process. And I don't know whether that's just because of our mindset or because we've been lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's always that old thing is, is it the way that we're parenting them or is it the child? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. people could argue about that all day long, but I mean, you're going to take it, aren't you? <laughs> and so it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool. And I, I'm, I'm almost, I think I'm glad that I, I did have kids in my 40s mm. because I, I don't have any sort of desire or compulsion to be out partying or doing any stupid stuff you know i i like being around the house and i like being with the kids and i like being with Bella and i like having our our life the way it is you know we've got our little gym at home i love training at home i still get to shoot out a couple of 
times a week to do my wrestling and jiu-jitsu and so the, the things that I, I love are all there and yeah. you know it's it, it's pretty cool yeah yeah has so has much changed because I mean you had a bit of a like you've worked I'm assuming either from home or kind of almost for yourself um for the last what 10 plus years like as far as I can kind of think back and I don't know you can tell me if I'm wrong but I don't think I've seen you in like a, a day job you know um so to speak since I've known you like is that is that right yeah that's fair I mean I've I've always worked for myself the only times I've ever been sort of working out of home is when I would see you know when I was still seeing clients in the clinic which I don't see anymore um mm-hmm. don't have a clinic anymore and when I was doing a lot of strength coaching so yeah. you know I, I typically back in the day I used to you know get up and go and train people in the morning yeah uh, probably train four or five clients then I would shoot back to the office I would see clients in the afternoon then I'd shoot up to the gym and do my weightlifting training um get home eat go to bed repeat kind of thing <laughs> Uh, whereas now, yeah, I mean, I, I work from home. Our entire team at the institute that, that I own and run is is they're all remote. Uh, all of the education we deliver is online now. Since actually before COVID, so we we didn't yeah. have to transition during COVID, which was nice. And uh, and yeah, I've, you know, I, I guess for the last maybe ten plus years, trained at home as well. Yeah. So do you think that's been a pretty decent advantage? to you in terms of like being able to I guess arrange your day kind of how you want and schedule things around you know I don't know if it was you know sleep wake cycles that sort of stuff with the kids um as opposed to having to you know get out of bed at seven or whatever and be at work by 8 30 and then not be home till 5 30 like how's that kind of do you think there's been a bit of benefit for you in that big time I think it really helps having everything here at home because it's just yeah. you know it just cuts down all that traveling time when yeah. I first got into business, I had um, supplement shops in Newmarket, which is actually just down the road from where I live now, but I used to live mm-hmm. on the shore. I would sometimes spend four hours a day sitting in traffic if there was Jeez. congestion. So it was nuts. And I don't, I can't even imagine what it would be like now, you know, going from the sort of northern North Shore into Newmarket in Auckland every day. And I just wouldn't do it because it's just so much wasted time, you know. So it is a real blessing, but I, I think a big part of how I've been able to, to do this with some degree of sanity is that I also actively limit my my work hours. Yeah. You know, I, I look after my uh, our eldest Dexter in the morning mm. um, and he usually just comes into the garage gym with me and he lifts a few kettlebells and stuff like that. He's like two and a half, but he just likes doing stuff. He like up between sets, if I'm doing bench, he lies down and he just pushes against my hands and stuff like that. It's really funny. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I get to do that in the morning. I usually start work by 10, which is obviously a lot later than I used to start, but it's mm-hmm. just what works with our routine now. And I try and finish work before 4.30. So, you know, really it's about six hours of work a day, sometimes a little bit less on a Friday. Yeah. The reality is, though, I think it's really interesting. I was talking about this with some of my colleagues because we're all evidence-based, right? And we don't take that evidence-based approach into our work lives, I don't believe. Because if we look at the, the, the research, most people work too much to be efficient. Yeah. They're, they're losing productivity because they're so fatigued. And so I, I think we need to improve our effectiveness within the hours we've got and not allowing ourselves to get burnt out by work. Now, obviously, the, the side benefit of that is I get to spend that little bit more time with the kids. 
Mm. So I get to spend, you know, time with Dexter in the morning. I get to spend time with Dexter and Rumi in the afternoon. I give Dexter his dinner and all that kind of stuff. I've got to also say that it's it, it's made easy for me because Bella is a, a wicked mum and she has ev- like everything prepared. She's so on point with <laughs> stuff, like things that I didn't even realise we would need before we had kids. She's yeah. like got it ready, right? <laughs> and so it does make my life easy. But you know, it, it's also an intentional thing to, to to set that time aside. Now, of course, I'm privileged in the in the, in the respect that I can do that because I yeah. run my own business, I work from home, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in one sense, but I've also been in business, you know, working on this stuff for 26 years. So if you yeah. went back to your earlier days, and this is kind of not even a, a dad related, this is probably more of a business related question. Like if you go back to your early years when you're, you know, I know you wrote the books, you obviously would have had to set up the Educational Institute and all of those sorts of things, like how you did that, was that? longer hours was that harder work or and that's kind of led to your ability to scale back in terms of your work hours now or do you like how do you kind of view that was that a i had to grind all that you know because there's a big thing right you have to grind you got to work more than everyone else whatever it is mm. um from your perspective in the early days was it like that and it's allowed you to free up now or do you think you had i don't know <laughs> take, take that where you may i think you know at times you need to grind and sometimes you need to you know, put in those all-nighters. Sometimes you need to just work ridiculous hours. But I think we glorify that, and I think we end up doing that too much. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I definitely think when I was younger, I did a lot of ineffective work, you know, kind of like what a lot of people do at the gym. Yeah. Go to the gym, run around, wave your arms around, get sweaty. Have you really achieved anything? I, I think I did a lot of that when I was younger at work as well. I wrote some terrible books. I put out, you know, shitty articles. I did a lot of stuff that it was very distractive. I was, you know, all over the place doing a whole bunch of things all at once. And I think with age, it's been a constant process of peering back and trying to do fewer things better. Yeah. And I mean, as you've probably seen as well, that is cast into light very clearly when you have kids because you don't have the extra time and energy to do non-essential stuff or, yeah. or just stuff that's not going to be leading to where you want to want to be yeah. so i mean that plays into for me for you know for training for work um you know for, for me it's it's very i have very clear priorities now mm-hmm. and I, I think that's really important i think that's something i would have benefited from when i was younger you know, there's yeah. and it's so funny. There's a lot of things like when I was a younger strength athlete, I would have benefited from squatting more. You know, I would have benefited from. I lo- I loved your post on five three one. And I some I jump in and out of five three one nowadays just for a bit of fun as well. Um, I really like the idea of you know patience. I was always rushing to try and be stronger. Yeah, I, I yeah. should have set a base more you know i should have squatted Mm. more because my my leg strength was my weakness i had a strong back and weak legs you know things like that and i think going back i would have been more focused on what's important rather than trying to prove myself whether that was by writing a book and getting it out and expecting it to be a bestseller when it was actually poor quality or you know starting up a new business on a whim because it also doesn't help that i have bipolar disorder right so i'm prone to (laughs) 
episodes if I'm not well balanced and I'm not taking care of my health. I'm prone to episodes of hypomania. Yeah. And that could be one of those things where I think, I'm going to set up a new business doing this and this and this, and I spend the next three days working on it without getting any sleep. Like, that's not healthy, <laughs> and it's not it's not productive. And it's it's really nice now to also have a team around me. Yeah. Because my, my <clears throat> team at the Institute, the people we employ are awesome. Yeah. So yeah. cool. And I can throw an idea at them and say, hey, guys, what do you think of this? And often it's like, dude, we don't need to be doing that. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Otherwise, I would have just launched into it and done it, you know, and <laughs> yeah, wasted yeah. time, wasted energy, and not achieved what I wanted to achieve. So I guess, like, you've got a better perspective on things in terms of you can almost take a bit of a step back and think of what is the value of this or what is the, you know, yeah, what's the value add? Why why is this important? Why should, or, or should I be doing this? Whereas before it would have been a, this sounds like a great idea. I'm going to run after it. Yeah. And a big part of that too is I really don't feel like I've got anything to prove. Yeah. You know, I, I used to put a lot of stock in achieving the next thing and trying to prove to everyone that I was smart or that I was strong or that I was this or I was that. At the end of the day, I'm sure I'm smart. I'm not actually that strong, even though I lifted some heavy shit once upon a time, but it doesn't matter. You know, I don't yeah. need to prove myself within the industry. I don't need to prove myself on the platform. It's it's just stuff that you do that in, increases your, I don't know, it's just fun, right? It's, it's just stuff yeah. that improves yeah. your happiness. It's not about those in, extrinsic drivers. And if there's anything that I've learned, it's, it's that. I'm still learning it yeah. um, because, you know, we still muck things up from time to time. But that's, that's led to a, a a much greater sense of calmness, I guess. Mm, mm. It's quite interesting. Like I kind of, I guess I think a lot more similarly to that at the moment, like in terms of when I was younger, I probably felt like I had to be somewhere faster and had to show people that I was, I guess, worthy to be in the sport or worthy to be in academia or publishing, whatever it might've been. Like there was kind of this, I guess, ego driven piece um mm. to that whereas the older i get the kind of I, I don't know if it's part of having kids or not but like there's a bit or you know part of kids or part of aging or just i don't know is it a maturity thing but i think there's definitely a piece for me where having having harvey has made me a lot more acutely aware of the things that name. kind of matter um <laughs> thanks <laughs> thought you might like that we've <laughs> actually got um we got some cousins of Sasha's that have the last name Harvey as well. And so they were like, oh, you named him after us. But like, we didn't even think <laughs> of that. But <laughs> yes, we did. Um, so it's like, I think there's something to that. Like having the kids has yeah. kind of given me that ability that actually when I come home from work nowadays, like because I work basically four days, I work at the primary health organization. They have one day that's kind of dedicated to my coaching and things. But at the moment, it's like I come home from that job and the only thing that really matters is if Harvey's happy to see me, you know, yeah. like, and there was something that I read the other day in um, a daily dad email, I think it was. Um, and basically he said, you know, like, how do the how do your kids react when you come home to them? Like, are they happy to see you? Are they excited that you're coming home? Or are they like, you know, is it like they're welcoming a stranger back, you know? And I yeah. sort of thought, man, that's a really deep um, way to look at it, but it is something to kind of think about. And I think probably even more so as you get older, right? When the kids are little, I think they're excited because you're dad and you're there but i guess that relationship over time will evolve and you know how you interact with them and sort of i guess what the things you do with them will probably lead to 
how they then respond when they see you, right? Are they wanting to spend time with you? Are they keen to hang out with you? I'm like, man, that's such a good way to kind of value your, or look at your, I guess, effectiveness as a dad. Like, is are your kids genuinely happy to spend time with you? Yeah. <laughs> and obviously there's going to be times when they're teenagers when they're teenagers and they're not, right? But as a general overall rule, what's what's that like? And I thought, man, that's such a cool way to think about things in terms of what really matters in life, right? And you can have a shitty day at work and have pissed people off or not delivered on whatever you were meant to have done. And you can get home and if the boy's excited to see you, then it's fine, right? All that stuff sort of washes away until you end up at work tomorrow. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, mate, but I just, you know, uh, there I'm we are. Dude, no, that, I mean, that's so insightful and it's, you know, rang a, a whole bunch of bells for me because there, there's a lot in there. One, one thing for me is there's a real hard end to my day now. Mm. And, and I was always pretty good at knocking off and then switching off from work. But sometimes, you know, there's stuff lingering there and you just put in that extra hour or two. Yeah. But now I know, you know, I, I, I can't do that because I have to, no, I don't have to, but I want to go and I want to stop. I want to help out. I want to yeah. be with the kids. I want to give them dinner, you know. And that's, it's so important. And I, I completely agree that, it puts everything into focus because I found at least once we had kids that it's kind of like nothing else matters. Mm. The rest is so inconsequential because I want to have a great relationship with my kids and I want to try, you know, as imperfectly as I am going to do it and as much as I'm going to screw it up, I want to try and provide an environment where they can grow up to be really good humans. Yeah. And that's, I, I Feel like there's a massive responsibility within that and it's it's takes it to a whole different level because I was, again i was talking about this with bella the other day we have really i i believe we have really cool ethical sort of rules within our institute right like mm -hmm. we will never i don't care how fresh someone is you know how recent a graduate they are whatever everyone starts on a living wage at least yeah you know everyone's income goes up year on year at, at least matching inflation, usually much more. You know, I won't earn more than a specific multiple of our lowest paid employee, you know, things like that. That's really important to me because I think we have a responsibility to those people in, in that whānau. Mm. But when you have kids, it's like that responsibility is is even more, you know. You, you have to be on point. And one, one, two things that I've found in particular, I, I've always thought I was a patient person but it's really thrown into light my sometimes tendency to be impatient. Mm. And I've never thought I was a selfish person, but I think all of us, if we don't have kids, can veer towards that because we do have the ability to just say, oh, I know I'm going to go and train now, or I'm going to do this now, whatever. And it's all for, or I'm just going to sit on my phone for a while and get distracted, right? And then you've got these kids there. It's like, I can't do that. And sometimes there's a bit of a conflict. Like, I just want to do stuff for me. But that's yeah. not important. You know, you have to be far more selfless as a parent. And that's, um, it's challenging, but it's, it, it, I think it's a real growth process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of feel everything you've said there. <laughs> um, and I, I think especially now, like back to when I was training powerlifting and those days of where, you know, like I might have like a two- to three hour session you know some days of the week and I used to think nothing of that like and I kind of think back now and I'm like 
how bad of a husband was I then? Like, <laughs> just just going out to the garage for two or three hours and thinking nothing of it, or going to the gym and thinking nothing of it. And I'm like, like, how did Sash feel about that? Like, I don't know if I actually genuinely are. Like, I I generally think I've had pretty good communication and said I'm going to be doing this or whatever. You know, like I feel like we've had pretty good communication lines and Sash. If you you're not going to be listening to this, but if you were, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but I kind of think we've always had good communication around that sense. But I don't know if I ever sort of went out of my way to say, hey, is this like, are you happy to support me with this priority? <laughs> um, whereas now it's kind of like that is that is a much more of a thing, right? Because we're both trying to be able to look after our own health and wellness and those sorts of things, as well as obviously have Harvey as our number one kind of priority between us. And obviously that comes with an element of shared parenting because of how our relationship is, right? And so... Mm-hmm we kind of have to manage those things together. And there is a lot more communication around those things of what do you need to do or what do I need to do? Or what do I want to do? And making those allowances so the other person can have some of that free time and recharge time. Um, but it wasn't something you had to think about before, right? You, exactly. I could just run off to the garage for two hours and it didn't really, you know, have a massive impact, or at least as I just said, not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, has that meant that you are more minimalist with your training now? Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, I say that and then I've, you know, when I've been doing specific events like half marathons and things like that, obviously there's been those longer run days and there's been, you know, you sort of have to be on your feet for a certain amount of time for some of those things, right, to be able to achieve the objective. But my strength training has become, yeah, um, very quick. Um, Oftentimes, you know, if I do my main lifts, it will only be sort of somewhere between two and four working sets. If that, you know, two two will probably be the lowest, but normally sort of three or four on the main lifts. And then I might only do a couple of accessories, you know, in a day, and it might be a three or four exercise, you know, in the day, and it'll be done within, generally all of my sessions now can be completed within sort of 20 to 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't typically train for longer than an hour. I will have one day a week nowadays where I'll, you know, go, sometimes I'll go and do that session with Jono because it's a chance to catch up with a friend as well as, um, you know, get some some training in while talking banter. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of more of a social occasion in terms of the time frame of that training rather than the training itself. You could probably still do that in 45 minutes. Um, yeah. So it's very, very different. It looks very, very different. And I guess the way I approach that as well, you know, there's more supersetting things, those types of practices to try and be efficient in the time that I have, but also just choosing exercises that are more bang for buck, cover more of the main stuff and not spending as much time, I guess, on the fluff. Um, which I might have wanted to do previously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, is that the same for you, or how does that kind of look? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I I typically, I think for a lot of my training, I have almost like Mm non-negotiables. So it might be for a certain phase, I might, um, you know, I might might snatch and squat on one day. Yeah. And that's it. But if if I have a little bit more time, I might add in some assistant stuff. But it's more like it's it's core plus play kind of thing. It's like the non-negotiables plus a little bit of playing around if I, you know, need to. Um, I've got an injury at the moment, so I did my uh, MCL at Jiu-Jitsu. So I'm just sort of getting back into things now. And I'm just focusing on five lifts, but just work up to one heavy working set of each of those. And I do that every day. Yeah. So it's just, you know, at the moment I'm just doing thick bar, so the two and a half, or maybe it's three and two and a half inch handles yeah. on the trap bar. Um, so trap bar deadlifts, incline bench. Um, what else am I doing? Oh, tra- trap bar deadlift, incline bench, pull-ups, and a little complex I do, which is just a um, curl press row complex yeah. with some heavy dumbbells. 
and then some ad rollouts. And I just do that every day because it's yeah. you know, easy, easy on the MCL. It's going to cover everything. Um, it's kind of like that, you know, 40 day program that Dan John used to talk yeah. about. It's just a bit of a change up and it means I, I was in and out of the gym this morning in 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But it's still, yeah. you know, hit, hitting, hitting decent numbers on things, but not pushing it either. It's just, you know, easy daily maxes. I, I really like that idea. I like squatting when I can squat, which I'll get back into soon. I like squatting every day just because I don't like a dedicated leg session. Yeah. I, I can't really handle that nowadays because I've got to, you know, still go to jiu-jitsu. I've also <laughs> got to like pick up the kids and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to be debilitated, but I find I can get, you know, the strength of my legs out pretty well just through greater frequency. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Eh? And it's one of those things where I think, um, I guess you kind of, when you're younger, and you have more time it's like i don't know what the law is called but you know that one where you sort of fill up the time that you've got um there's something around what's that parkinson's law work will expand expand to fill the time allotted to it yeah and i guess that's probably part and parcel of what you're saying earlier about when you've got a six-hour work day right you fit more into it and you get it done um rather than thinking oh i've got 12 hours today i'll just take my time and i'll flutter through it and then you know you're not as efficient as you otherwise could or would be but i think the same thing happens with training you know you know you've got an hour and a half or two hours that you've reserved in your day for training so you know that session which probably you could get in a lot quicker will take you longer or you'll just add more into it because you're like, well, I've got the time to train, right? But really, there's a bit of a law of diminishing returns with that as well in terms of, like, I think of this when you think of, like, one set versus multiple sets, right? Like, the more sets you add, the less you get from each subsequent set. The initial sort of one or two are probably your biggest bang for buck in terms of you're probably getting, you know, 60 to 70% of the gains from doing two sets that you mm. might from getting five. But, I mean, for some people, that 30% really matters, right? That extra, extra percentage they might get. Once you're kind of an older dude, training for fun, want to be strong, but it doesn't matter. You're not going to win or lose any world titles because of it. Two or three sets or one or two sets, it's probably heaps. <laughs> um, it's enough I'm... for me. So it works pretty well for me in terms of that regard. I've been pretty happy with yeah. that. And also knowing that there is evidence around some of this minimalist training. Like, I don't know if you've followed much of Dr. Pack's stuff, but, yeah. um, you know, there is evidence that if you push hard and you work hard and you do one or two hard sets of that exercise, then, you know, a couple of times a week, kind of almost like what you're doing, right? There's going to be an effectiveness to that. Is it optimal? Probably not. But does it need to be optimal? Probably not. So, and, but yeah. is it optimal for some people as well? I mean, you know, we, yes, what we see yes. within the research is incredible into individual variability. And I often talk about that when I'm talking about this with people, I often point them back to, um, you know, Marty Gallagher's book, The Purposeful Primitive. No, it's it's pretty cool because he obviously yeah. knew so many of those great weightlifters and powerlifters through yeah. his career. And you look at someone like Mark Chaylet, who used to work up to a heavy, like, max set of bench squat deadlift twice a week. Yeah. It, the dude was one of the strongest men to have ever lived. He was like a multiple world powerlifting champion, you know. Yeah. And you just can contrast that with someone like Paul Anderson, who used to just press and squat all day. Yeah. Because <laughs> he had a gym at home, and he would just basically just do go in and do a set, and then half an hour later go into another set, you know. Pressing the groove, probably not anywhere near as max, but still very heavy weights to yeah. us mere mortals. There's just so so many different approaches that mm. can work. I mean, I, I throw around different approaches. It's always based around fundamental movements, you know, squats, deadlifts, benches, snatches, yeah. cleaner jerks, all that kind of stuff. But I'll vary up the frequency and and volume just sort of for fun, but to maybe if I'm in a bit more of a hypertrophy, hypertrophy phase, whatever. Yeah. It all seems to work. And as long as I'm hitting, you know, over time, like, um, 
training rep maxes. And I usually yeah. look at that on like a three-year rolling average because, of course, I'm not going to hit the same <laughs> maxes that I was doing back in my 20s. Yeah, you know, yeah. if I'm hitting a better 5RM than I did two years ago at the age of 45, that's that's cool. Yeah. yeah. And I can also see that as I get older, those records in all round become a lot closer as well. <laughs> you know? The under yeah, 50 yeah. masters records, they're very achievable. <laughs> <laughs> By being consistent, you can kind of, you know, do quite well, eh? like in terms of maintain or still improve strength a little bit over time. And that kind of means a lot when you get to those older ages in terms of people tend to give it up right and lose it. And so by simply hanging around, I guess, um, yeah. and you can maintain majority of your strength, you're going to be doing a lot better than the, than the average. I think a lot of people underestimate, sorry, overestimate what strong is. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there like bros, like say, oh, unless you can deadlift three times body weight, you're not strong. I mean, th yeah. the reality is for your average person, that's not realistic and it's not yeah. necessary. Yeah. If you can deadlift twice your body weight, even if you can deadlift one and a half times your body weight, you're probably a pretty strong average person. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and that's that's cool. Like I think people should really be focused on, you know, progress, not perfection. So that's really off-putting for people to think, oh, I'm just not strong. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if you're going to hurt your back picking up your briefcase, <laughs> you're probably not strong. <laughs> yeah, but if you can then go into the gym and work up to deadlifting 100 kilos, which a lot of us would think, oh, that's not that heavy. It's actually it's pretty heavy because how often would an average person be lifting something that weighs 100 kilos? Mm. If they, you know, habituated to do that any day of the week, like if you can just go in and lift 100 kilos without a warm up, I think it's pretty strong. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think the benefit to the other aspects of your life, you know, or or the the risk and other aspects of your life, as you said, when you're going to do something like that, you know, because for some reason you end up shifting house or whatever it might be, suddenly you're in a much better position to actually be able to handle that um, yeah. than someone of your age may be if they're not active, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is why, you know, when I, I get injured, because that's just the nature of the game when you're still wrestling dudes in their 20s, you know. <laughs> but the way I look at it, I would rather put myself at risk of the occasional minor injury and still be relatively strong and fit and functional, hopefully until I'm like 100. I want to be like Ron Hillagen, who was deadlifting over 100 kilos in his 90s, you know? Yeah. It's rad. I want to do that, you know? I don't <laughs> want to be one of these people who just slowly fades away and 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 loses that because they're afraid of the risk of injury. Yeah. I see that yeah. so much with my older clients. They're like, you know, I've got a sore back. Should I stop lifting? Well, the reality is, and some people might disagree with me here, but we, we all know that the research on like pain versus pathology is, is very unclear. Mm. I think in a lot of cases we can say that, well, you, you may well be, if you don't train, you may be weakened in pain. If you train, you might be strong and in pain. I know which one I would choose. Hopefully you'll work on other things as well, which means you're not in pain. But given the choice, I'd much rather be strong with some pain than weak with pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just looking at the time now, mate, I think we may need to get into those final three here. Um, I know you didn't have a hard stop, but... Uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I have gone I, a bit further than you thought. <laughs> I was super excited to talk to you, and that's because I haven't spoken to you in a long time, number one. But when we met all those years ago, I was really... Like, I, I, I thought what, what you were doing and what Jono and those guys were doing was awesome. Like, you were competing yeah. in a really hard sport and lifting really heavy stuff. You guys were dudes that I put up on a pedestal. You know, you were one of those guys that I thought, this dude's a, a legitimately strong guy. And I just thought your whole approach to 
to everything was was really wicked. So that's why I was so stoked to talk with you today. Oh, mate, I appreciate appreciate those kind words from uh, Dr. Harvey himself, the man without a undergraduate but with a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right, man. So I sent you through those final three. Um, hopefully you had a little bit of a chance to look at them. Sometime I've, sometimes I've thrown them at people uh, randomly. So you've at least had the little bit of uh, foresight, hopefully to have a bit of a think. But we've got three questions that I basically ask anyone um, that comes on. And the first one is what is one key parenting tip or a word of advice that you would have for new dads? So we're thinking in those first few years. You know, I... I... I thought about this and I thought about a number of things, but something that's sort of popped up just randomly while we've been chatting is I think just remember that your kid is more important than your phone. I, I yeah. think that nowadays in society, we're so distracted by inflammatory media, social media, you know, various types of things that we are attracted to on our phone. It's very easy to be distracted by that. And I find that I need to be careful with that. I need mm. to like put my phone away. I need to have, and I do this anyway, but I have, you know, apps that block social media outside of work hours. Yeah. Um, you know, I have apps that block my email outside of work hours, all that kind of stuff, because I just don't want to, to be sitting there on my phone while my kid is, is getting that as an example, but also just taking away that time that I could be playing with him, you know, yeah. or playing with, with them now. So yeah, I'd say your, your kid is way more important than your phone, dude. Good, good. I like that. <laughs> I did have one of those apps that was blocking me at a certain time of night, like it would it would stop me going on, and then I kind of I stopped that. And one of the <laughs> one of the strategies I try, and I I will admit I'm not good at this at the moment. I need to keep doing it, but I put my charger in another room. Yeah. Um, and the idea is supposed to be hasn't started happening that consistently yet that I don't actually take it, you know, into my bedroom. Or I can put it over onto the charger in this other room so that when I'm out with Harvey, I don't have to, you know, it's not even in front of me. It's not an option. Because I think yeah. as soon as you remove that temptation, I guess, um, it does make it a lot easier to kind of just avoid casually picking it up. You have to make the effort to walk up the hall to go and pick it up and check your social media or whatever it might be. Um, admittingly, not perfect. It's a new strategy I'm trying and I need to get better at. But um, I think I'll take some of your words of advice there, Cliff, and try and implement that one um, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit better. Uh, the second one that we have here is what is the most helpful new habit um, or something that you've changed in your life that you've implemented in the last year? And it doesn't have to be limited to parenting or training. This could be anything, basically. It's a really good question because I'm not sure that I've really implemented anything specifically except hmm. I did, I, I did a couple of years back during lockdown, I thought I'm going to, you know, I couldn't go to jujitsu, I couldn't go to wrestling. And so um, I thought I'll see if there's any virtual comps on because obviously everything had cut down. And so the Iowa guys, the International Around Weightlifting Association, they put on some virtual events and that was really yeah. cool to get back into com competitive lifting. But that also then spurred me to get back into the Olympic lifts, which I'd kind of neglected for many years because I figured I don't need them. You know, I can just stick to the power lifts and I'll still be strong and all that kind of stuff. But I noticed that my my body was starting to break down. And I think that was just because there were subtle things that I got from that that really improved my posture and positioning. But it's translated to more than that. Yeah. You know, in terms of my mobility 
because we all think you know full range strength training is just as effective as stretching but do a lot of us actually do full range training like if i'm doing low bar powerlifting style squats it's a big difference to doing high bar olympic style squats if i'm doing you know some overhead pressing in the old school style lean back um, or maybe doing benching or whatever am i really getting the same shoulder mobility that i get from snatching or from you know uh clean and jerking and whatnot probably not so mm-hmm. there's been a lot of benefits there i know that sounds like a physical thing but there have been crossover benefits in terms of energy and breathing that really surprised me and that yeah. has played into work it's played into parenting it's played into everything i feel less stiff you know i feel like i've got more you know motion through my joints i feel like i'm breathing better so that translates to everything i'm doing so if it were anything it would actually be bringing back the olympic lifts i know that sounds a little bit alpha, <laughs> but that's basically what it is are you just trying to make me feel bad because i'm not doing any of the olympic lifts at the moment cliff is this a tactic <laughs> well, I, I thought that i'd kind of given it up on it and also i'd modified a lot right I'd sort of gone, well, I don't need to be doing any full cleans anymore. Power cleans are great. And I'm not saying they're not. Like, power cleans are fantastic. I do those, obviously. But it's, it's it almost got to the point where I couldn't do a full clean or a full snatch anymore. I'd lost mm-hmm. that ability. And it wasn't just technique. There was definitely stuff going on in terms of position and posture. Yeah. And, like, that's been really important for me because, um, you know, especially through the sort of thoracic region and whatnot, I think it's really important to preserve that. And like I say, it's mm-hmm. just had a lot of ancillary benefits. So yeah, it's been really cool to see that. That's quite an interesting one. Um, and then our last one of the final three is, do you have any book and or podcast recommendations? Yeah, for podcasts, obviously, I in the sort of training space, I, I dig, you know, Eric's one of my favorite people. We're, we're such good mates. And I think he's just such a, a good example in this industry that I, I dig yeah. iron culture. I think he's rad, you know. Um, I really like my friend Mickey's podcast, Wikipedia. That's Dr. Yep. Mickey Willard. Um, and outside of that, I listen to I listen to a lot of stuff you should know. It's a really cool podcast. It's just these little sort of vignettes of interesting topics, but you know, it's just a, a fun thing where you learn a lot about really diverse topics. Yeah. Um, in terms of books, that's a tough one because I read a massive amount. Yeah, like it's it's just and not in no self-aggrandizing way. I just that's my main form of entertainment is to read fiction, especially because I read so many papers during the day. Because as you know, I do yeah. living reviews for the institute, so I'm reading you know study after study after study. I tend to not read a lot of nonfiction anymore because of that. I mainly listen to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I read a lot of novels, and I guess recently one that really struck me was a novel called The Parable of the Sower. Yeah. And it's it's kind it's a very scary novel because it's set in the well it's actually set in this time but it was written a couple of years ago but it's so close to reality it's like it's the the slow downfall of civilization and society but you can actually see this happening in places like the states now like it's it's this kind of scenario could actually occur so it's kind of a a, a slightly scary almost apocalyptic kind of mm-hmm. novel um so that's that's been a really cool one if, if you had to ask me you know what's my favorite book of all time it'll probably be the brothers karamazov by dostoevsky uh which can be a bit of a grind to get into but once you're in it kind of sucks you in and um you, you can't get out uh but yeah i mean i've i've you know been a massive fan of 
fantasy, science fiction. Um, I think the greatest science fiction series was the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. I mean, it's fantastic. But I'll leave you with a nonfiction one, actually. There's a really cool nonfiction book called Drive by Daniel Pink. Yeah. And he, he basically summarizes a lot of the research on what motivates people. And I think for anyone who's in business or is a parent, it's really epiphanical, right? Because it, it really shows quite clearly that punishment and monetary reward are very poor drivers of motivation. Mm -hmm. Social pressure, um, you know, feeling like you're part of something, you know, those types of things are so much more important for, for driving positive action. And I think that's really important when we're talking about parenting because we can't just punish our kids into doing what we want and we can't always just be rewarding them with you know <laughs> treats or money or whatever because that yeah. doesn't work anyway either in the long term people need to feel like they're part of something and it's a collective effort for good and so i think yeah. that's a really really good book for people to read whether they're in business or whether they're parents or both interesting mate. i don't think i've had so many book recommendations to question three in the history of the podcast so I, you've, you've won an award today of probably the most book recommendations um it's which, very I, hard to choose, which i think is great 50 books a, a year man <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably for you as a smaller percentage of the books you've read compared to some of the other guests maybe <laughs> i think i've probably i mean if i read 50 a year i think and there might be some years where i read less i mean it's got to be well over a thousand books yeah and you know i, I don't think i'd even remember all of them now <laughs> But again, for me, it's, you know, again, not a self-aggrandizing thing. It's just purely because I love That's that you enjoy. fantastical side of just getting into something and letting your uh, imagination go wild, you know, which is why I think I prefer books. Even though I watch some telly, I prefer typically the book version of something than, you know, the, Film the, the series like, you know, yeah. Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or whatever. I much prefer reading it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, hey, man. And then just to finish us off, mate, where can people find you if they want to follow along with, with the stuff you're up to and what you do in your life? Where can they find Cliff and where can they find the Institute and those sorts of things? Yeah, the best place is the Institute, which is um, it's the Holistic Performance Institute. Very easy to find because it's just holisticperformance.institute. And then I'm sure people can spin out and find me on social and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> cool, man. It's been awesome to catch up. And as you said, it's been a long time since we last had a proper proper yarn. And um, this is probably one of the things for me that's been awesome about the podcast is I've got to catch up with people that I kind of, you know, have had, um, you know, discussions with or friendship with back in the day and had got to have some good yarns and kind of it's been a good chance to sit down and actually just chat to people that i enjoy talking to you know um for more than an hour so i appreciate yeah, you sitting down with me today man it's been awesome to have you on i hope people enjoyed the episode and for me it was really insightful as well to kind of get to hear a little bit about you know your upbringing and stuff because we've never chatted about that before so thanks heaps for making time and appreciate you coming on thanks bro i really enjoyed it thanks for listening to this episode of the stronger dads collective podcast if you found anything within this episode valuable please be sure to share it with someone else who you think might benefit from its content don't forget to give the podcast a rating on whatever platform you're listening to. If you want to follow along with what I'm up to, you can follow me on Instagram at hjp underscore stronger dads. If you're interested in any of my coaching services or learning more about me, just head to hjpmethod.co.nz. That's hjpmethod.co.nz. Right, we'll see you on the next one.